Welcome back to EM Pulse. Thanks so much to all of you for listening and subscribing. You are what makes us successful. To join the conversation, go to our website, ucdavisem.com, and follow us on social media at EM Pulse Podcast. This is EM Pulse bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 3, I'm Just a Reanimatologist. Hey Sarah, have you ever seen a patient cannulated for ECMO? You know, I honestly don't think I have. I have had patients that I know ended up getting put on ECMO or they were already on ECMO that I knew about, but I don't think I've ever seen it initiated. Sure. I, I think that makes sense. I, as a pediatrician, I think I saw it within like my first three or four days of my third year of medical school. I was on my ped surgery rotation and we got called up stat to the NICU. We arrived there and we found some baby. I don't even remember, frankly, what the child's underlying diagnosis was, but they were doing CPR on the baby. Uh, but what I do clearly remember was that we utilized a ton of resources. I was like a deer in the headlights as all of this was happening because basically we converted the entire pod of the NICU into an OR. Everything got covered in blue drapes. There's 10 NICU doctors and five ped surgeons and then all of the entourage with each of those different <laughs> teams. <laughs> And then they roll in these massive carts that were like taller than I was. And there was two, maybe three of them. I don't know. It felt like a stink ton of them. And there's a million nurses that are setting up and they're pouring in gallons and gallons of blood into these systems. And I just was in absolute awe as these entire team and all of this just massive amount of resources was going into this. And it was my first just amazing moments with inside of medical school of like the amazing things that we can do in medicine and the amount of resources that we can utilize. Yeah, that's a crazy story. I feel like when I hear about ECMO, it's kind of this this magical thing that happens that, that we sort of speak <laughs> about in hushed tones. Like, you know, what's going to happen to this kid? Oh, they might have to initiate ECMO. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so true. You know, the interesting thing is, is ECMO is definitely different than my days in medical school, but I think the same principles now still apply. And in fact, they have now come up with a better term than just ECMO because ECMO is actually just a specific mode with inside of the umbrella term of extracorporeal life support or ECLS. ECLS includes things like ECMO, ECPR, and even in some institutions, hemodialysis and other modes of taking the blood out, cleaning it, and putting it back in in a really heroic type of way. Right. And it's similar to the concept of cardiopulmonary bypass that we are all familiar with in surgery. But this one can be used for days at a time, and the cannulae are in the neck and femoral vessels instead of transthoracic. The purpose of ECMO is really to allow time for intrinsic recovery of the lungs and or heart by removing blood from the person's body, then artificially removing the carbon dioxide and oxygenating red blood cells. Yeah, so there's basically two types. There's venous venous, which is the most common, and venous arterial ECMO. With both of those, the blood is drained and then oxygenated, but in venous venous, the blood is returned to the venous system and no cardiac support is supplied. Whereas with venous arterial, the oxygenated blood is returned to the arterial system 
And cardiac support is supplied. Yeah, so we call that VV and VA. So just like a lot of great things in medicine, it started in pediatrics. (laughs) (laughs) We started exploring using ECMO, and then the adult world was like, dude, that's really cool. (laughs) We get everything from you guys. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Um, And so they started using it for adults as well that had cardiac or respiratory failure. Basically, for whether you're a kid or whether you're an adult, to be using ECMO, you need to have somebody that is generally healthy or has whatever problem, their heart or their lung is failing, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a reversible cause. And by placing this patient on this resource-intense treatment plan of ECMO and also risk-intense treatment plan of ECMO, this patient will have time to recover. Their lungs or their heart can recover with antibiotics or with time or even transitioning them over to an LVAD or over to transplant. Things that we might use this for are things like asthma, where we just need some time to get better, or a really bad pneumonia, or even some people are using it for sepsis. But other things could be like overdoses on drugs or a PE or even a heart attack on an otherwise healthy person. Yeah. So let's actually look at a case of a critically ill patient where ECMO was indicated. This case was published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, and we're really lucky to have the lead author on the case report, Dr. Jonathan Ford, with us today. Dr. Ford is a medical toxicologist and assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. So, John, what can you tell us about this case? Yeah, it was a great case. I just uh, finished fellowship. Uh, It was my first month as a tox attending, and I'd actually just gone to bed after a, a long ED shift when I got a call from the a resident saying that they had a very sick patient who overdosed on uh, their metoprolol and diltiazem. And I thought initially he was kidding, but he assured me he wasn't. And I got back in my car and raced back to the ED to try to help out. But I saw a very sick young female who had very low blood pressure, and the ED attending and the resident were trying to uh, place an intravenous pacemaker because uh, she had essentially no pulse. Her blood pressure was, I think systolic was around 40, and I don't think a diastolic was palpable. I think she was barely holding on. The husband estimated it was about uh, 30 days worth of both drugs, metoprolol and diltiazem. The next step was to try to initiate some therapeutics that had been uh, used before for beta blocker overdoses and calcium channel overdoses. And since we knew that she took both, we uh, kind of started both types of treatments. And since we knew she took a lot of it, we knew that we were going to have to get on them early uh, and, and hard. Uh, initially, we wanted to just make sure that she was euvolemic, so we gave her a lot of, lot of fluids. And then uh, tried atropine as an attempt to try to get her heart rate up, just to, more or less just to buy us some time. Because we're low blood pressure, we started on norepinephrine. We were going to give her a bunch of glucagon to counteract the beta blocker. And we were going to initiate high-dose insulin therapy to try to uh, overcome the calcium channel blocker effects. It uh, didn't raise her blood pressure very much at all. Fortunately, she was still being paced, both electrically and cutaneously. So we still were able to keep her alive. We decided to try intralipid as a a last resort, and that uh, just wasn't working. Uh, It wasn't gaining her an adequate blood pressure. It was not getting an adequate cardiac output. Uh, So we decided we needed something else. The very last thing is only available in certain locations, and I knew that we had it available at UC Davis, and we decided to initiate ECMO, or extracorporeal life support. All right, so you just heard the fascinating case of a young, otherwise medically healthy female in cardiac arrest who needed time to metabolize, and so they started ECMO on her in the ED. 
And this is pretty controversial. There are definitely pros and cons. So to sort this out, we've brought in a couple experts. Yes. To my left, we've got Dr. Dan Colby, who is a medical toxicologist and assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. And to my right, we have Dr. John Rose, who is a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. And uh, I don't know, John, what do you go by? I'm just a reanimatologist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to your corners, boys. Uh, let's get ready to rumble. Round one. Why should we or should we not initiate ECMO in the ED? John Rose, let's go ahead and start with you, and then we'll move over to Dan Colby. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. And I certainly respect my uh, colleagues, Dan and Jonathan. They're just, you know, they're toxicologists. They're really, really brilliant. I'm not that smart. I'm an emergency <laughs> physician. And uh, because of that, I think I look at a lot of other factors that really uh, sometimes are the practical part of this. I know that eCPR and the concept of having a machine support has been talked about even since back with Peter Saffer looking at this and talking about with resuscitation. It's been around for a long time. I think uh, we've latched on to this one device that we know has worked well in pediatrics and it's worked well with certain cases like overdoses of this or pulmonary emboli before people have cardiac arrests. But the amount of resource, and if you listen to the case, the money and the time and the personnel required I don't believe this is a, has really reached prime time for most docs in the ED. I think most emergency departments, this is not prime time for this. Um, hospitals don't have the resource to put this together. Uh, this is an institution that has a very, you know, a lot of resources and a lot of services to help out. But most EDs and docs don't have this. They get a bad overdose like this, and they're not going to, this has not really reached a point where the equipment and, uh, you know, has gotten to, that people can do it easily and write it the time of resuscitation, without a lot of work. And I think that this is a lot of money that's going to be, if we're going to expand it out of other indications. And I know eCPR is where some people are moving, that cardiac arrest should do this. And I think we have to be really careful about that waste of money because the amount of personnel and such that's needed is quite high. Right, so I think uh, Jonathan Ford's case is a great example of when it can be successful. And that has us thinking, everything went smoothly with that case. We've called other times and things don't always go smoothly because we currently don't have any emergency department protocols in place, a criteria for when we call, when we activate the ECMO team. It has to be an individual physician thinking, oh, maybe this case would be good. Maybe this overdose, maybe this pulmonary embolism, maybe this heart attack would be a great ECMO case. And things can then be slow. Time is of the essence with these patients. These patients, by definition, are dying or dead. So having protocols in place because you need someone to be the perfusionist and agree to take care of the patient and the ECMO device, the perfusion device, which is time-intensive and labor-intensive and requires training. And then also you need someone who can cannulate. And right now, our emergency medicine physicians are not trained on cannulating, which is a big deal. Um, it's not easy to cannulate these patients. So right now we have to call on cardiothoracic surgery to cannulate. So having protocols, which I hope we can get, is would be my first step and my first goal in this project. Um, set protocols when we can call and a patient's met a criteria, patient overdosed on their beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, patient has is having a heart attack and they were a witness arrest. Maybe we can get protocols in place and things can go quickly and smoothly in those situations. 
So Sharp Memorial uh, is the probably best model on the West Coast. A little bit different. They're not an academic institution. It was much easier for them to just have a few meetings and just start an ED ECMO program um, versus a bigger institution. Yeah, we might have more resources, but it's a little more challenging. More people need to be involved. I also agree with almost everything uh, John said in terms of all the resources and money involved. It's a big deal. You can't just do it lightly. Uh, the payer mix also matters. Uh, reimbursement matters. I can tell you, fortunately, if you successfully cannulate a patient, not that reimbursement is the reason to be doing this, but it can somewhat support itself. Uh, reimbursement for ED ECMO can be anywhere from $100,000 to $200,000 if you successfully cannulate someone. So that there is a way to make this financially viable for a health system, but it's a challenge. It, it, it may not be a fit right now for every community hospital, um, but I think you have to start somewhere, and a big academic institution like ours is the place to start. Round two. We've heard about ECMO being initiated in the pre-hospital setting in Europe. Guys, is this where we're headed? Yeah, it's an interesting question. EMS in the United States is much different than it is when you talk about the Franco-German model where it's staffed by physicians. The data has not been as compelling about that being successful either. The movement, um, as what I've been hearing, is this movement to eCPR and the concept of the, of the cardiac arrest center, which now we're going to have a new center that we can all bill for, for a new thing, because only certain patients can go there. And then one of those <laughs> things, again, like we all like, more centers. So we're going to get our own certification as a cardiac arrest center. But all kidding aside, I think what's important to understand is patients who have return to spontaneous circulation may go to special centers. The big question comes up, what if they don't have return to spontaneous circulation and they're still in cardiac arrest? Do we transport those people, which most people call dead, to hospitals, then put them on ECMO or eCPR. And that is, I think, an area that I don't think we're at yet. I think until we miniaturize this and make it very simple to insert, that even actually Dr. Ford could insert it and somebody like that, <laughs> that it shouldn't, it probably is not ready for prime time yet. So speci specifically, uh, eCPR, meaning we're taking a patient who's under CPR and they meet a specific criteria, and that's the key to eCPR. You cannot be doing this on the majority of your CPR patients. A very small subset of patients who present to the emergency department under CPR meet a criteria to then have eCLS performed, and that's the key. It has to be witnessed arrest. Someone has to see the patient arrest. Uh, we have to have CPR started pretty much immediately, and we also have to be under a certain amount of time. Some places use 10-minute, 15-minute transport times. Um, so you can't, you don't want to start ECLS on someone who's been under CPR for an hour because outcomes are not going to be great. So to talk about a couple models, we have the Sharp Memorial model in San Diego, and I have some Parisian friends and I'm hoping to go uh, visit them and tour with them in their ambulance because what they're doing is amazing. If you take in the United States, witnessed arrest and presented the ED under CPR, optimistic, the most optimistic numbers say less than 10%, probably 8% neuro-intact survivability, right? That's the best case scenario for the best patients. That's what we're working with. Both at Sharp Memorial and in Paris, when they're doing eCPR in Paris, they're doing it in the field. They're cannulating in the field. They're talking 30% neuro-intact survivability. So I agree the resources are, are huge. The training is huge. The money is huge. The infrastructure is a huge investment. However, the outcomes to me justify all of that if, if done properly. Round three. Is ED ECMO even feasible? Right. So, so just to do ED ECLS in general, we would need to have our whole health system 
to, to work together uh, and make protocols. And that, that is definitely feasible. We have the resources for that. For true eCPR, you would need to train the emergency medicine physicians to cannulate. I went to the reanimate conference uh, run by the Sharp Memorial team, and I've been trained to cannulate. Um, that doesn't mean I do it often. It does not mean I'm an expert at it because I don't get to do it enough. I and mean, that's part of it, having a training protocol where you're regularly trained in cannulation because it's so technical right now still. To John's point, it's not easy. So you can't just do one every six months. You have to regularly be trained and get good at it. And we then have to make our criteria very tight and cannulate the right patients that were witness arrests under a certain age with a certain downtime and we might get them back. We might not with eCPR. A lot of these patients can be bridged to an LVAD or a heart transplant program, which is something else we haven't talked about. How some of these witness arrests, a big chunk of them are having heart attacks and a bunch of their heart is dead. And they are prime, if you get them back, they're prime LVAD and then prime heart transplant patients. Um, so that, that there's a value to that, that we, that's hard to quantify. Well, clearly Dan has drank the Kool-Aid and we are in Wonderland <laughs> right now. So, I have, I have. I like the Kool-Aid. I think um, he brings up some good points. The struggle I think we have is we will never, as emergency physicians in the United States, in the way our EMS systems really ever have emergency physicians who are going to be riding out on the few cardiac arrests that occur. In most really good cardiac arrest centers, we know that transport is not what you want to do immediately because we know with the witness arrest, which is the person with the best survival, that the model of uh, high-performance CPR and early defibrillation is best. And we know in, in centers that do that well in a pre-hospital, they can have rates of, of ROS that approach um, higher than 50% and people going home neurologically intact closer to 30%. Now, most systems don't have that. But in the United States, I can't imagine we're ever going to staff where physicians are going out and doing this. The second thing being that we're not going to be bringing people into the emergency department with all this gear on. No one's going to go do this out there until we make this miniature. And if any of our listeners would like to invent this device, I'd be happy to invest in it today. But if you can miniaturize this and figure out a system from which to place these that even the average college student who's going to be a paramedic can place these, then we might have a chance to use this as part of the CPR model. But I think we're technologically away from that at this point, and that may come. But I think trying to retrofit the the equipment we can use in hospital for the great case that Dr. Ford had and for people that are hypotensive is different to, I think, to extrapolate this out to the patient who suffered cardiac arrest, believing somehow we're going to get um, reasonable neurologic survival for the number of patients we're going to have to do this on, the amount of money we're going to have to spend. I think, you know, as I say that, that doesn't kill you, makes you stronger, but most of the time puts you in a nursing home with a trach. I think that <laughs> this is kind of what we're going to generate a lot of people that are not going to do so well. I can talk about the specific protocol that Sharp Memorial proposes. They're not doing pre-hospital eCPR, to be specific. They're waiting until the patient comes to their ED. They're making sure they meet the criteria. They initiate CPR at the first pulse check. They put um, some sort of mechanical CPR device on the patient. Uh, freeze up space. I can tell you from experience, trying to cannulate a patient under manual CPR versus the mechanical CPR. Um, there may not be differences in, in mortality outcome with the devices, but there is difference in ease of putting these, these catheters in. So at the first pulse check, they put on the mechanical CPR if the patient didn't already come in with a mechanical CPR device. And they have one physician at the head of the bed intubating as necessary and then determining whether the patient meets criteria for eCPR. Simultaneously, another attending physician is putting in an arterial line and a venous line femorally. 
And that way, if the physician at the head of bed determines that the patient does meet criteria, they can seamlessly switch to the ECLS catheters, which they're large catheters. That's the problem. As a counterpoint to John, the actual ECMO machines right now, I can hold it in my hand. They're the size of a small computer. They're very much portable, which is how the Parisian team can, can do it in the field. Um, but it makes it much easier to have have one sitting in your resuscitation bay in the ED ready to go if you're able to place the catheter. So some, a lot of this is being miniaturized, the catheters and, and cannulating being the, the biggest obstacle at this point. I mean, I do appreciate from Dr. Colby's point that, they're, that at Sharp Memorial, they are bringing in dead people and maximizing the amount of billing they can do on them before they die. <laughs> Fair enough. But, but, again, but again, the same patients um, that we're getting, we're getting 10% ROSC on or less, they're getting 30% ROSC on or less if you take that same subset. So that's, that's, that's people's lives. I got to meet a couple of them. They're alive now. And, we, and, and for us, they would have died. All right. So anybody ready to throw in the towel? No? Good fight, boys. Pulse check. Those were some really compelling arguments. I agree that they, you can make an argument one way or another. But the ECLS registry report published in January of 2018 does show some pretty amazing outcomes. For neonatal ECPR, they show a 40% survival to discharge or transfer rate. Also for pediatrics ECPR, 42%. And for adult ECPR, 29%. For total, when you add in pulmonary cardiac and ECPR and all ages, 55% survival rate to discharge or transfer. That's huge. The principles of ECMO of giving the heart and the lung a time to rest while the body heals itself or while we give treatments is, is really compelling. And the thought of being able to initiate that on patients that are in CPR in the emergency department and have this amazing heroic save is super interesting. But as John pointed out, there are some downsides to this as well. That is a ton of resources that go into initiating ED ECMO. Those resources being put into one patient mean they're not available for other patients, maybe in your emergency department outside of UC Davis or outside of the center or even with inside of the center. All of a sudden, that provider's not available anymore. Also, this creates yet another center of excellence. There's one more spot a patient has to get transferred. This also pulls money from insurance funding and away from other patients and other resources that might benefit from it as well. Clearly, there are a lot of unresolved questions, and I think time is going to tell what the future looks like with eCPR and ECMO in the emergency department. Now let's bring it back to John Ford and find out what happened to our patient. She was put in the intensive care unit, and over the course of uh, her stay over the next 24 hours, she metabolized the medications and slowly developed her own electromechanical uh, cardiac output, and we were able to wean her off uh, all the other therapeutics, slowly transition her off VCLS, and she ended up walking out of the hospital completely neurointact with no deficits of any, of any mention. If you want to delve deeper into this topic, check out the show notes and links at ucdavisem.com including a link to the ED ECMO podcast, which is a really great podcast dedicated to this topic. Thanks again for listening and supporting us. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media at EM Pulse Podcast. 
Yeah, and thanks to our department. Guys, seriously, we couldn't do this without you. Thanks to OM Audio Productions for everything that you do to make this a quality production. See you guys next time.